I see that we have our Titans, many of whom are with us today, especially up in the choir loft, and their coach, Brogan, a week from today at this time, they'll be duking it out at Ford Field, so let's hear it for our mighty Titans of Lumen Christi. Stand up, gentlemen. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. They're up there. There they go. Lord have mercy, so humble. Very good. Humility, we wish you all the best. Congratulations. I always love this first reading from Proverbs chapter 31. Usually we hear it at weddings. Sometimes we even hear it at funerals. It's the traits of a very good wife. <clears throat> Proverbs is attributed to Solomon, the son of David, to whom we attribute the book of Psalms. Both were written almost a thousand years before Jesus. And Solomon, well, it makes sense that he would be writing these wisdom sayings recorded in the book of Proverbs because the scripture instructs he was the wisest man ever produced in the history of humanity. God made it so. Remember, Solomon, son of David, was so faithful to God that God granted him a wish. What do you want? And he didn't ask to be wealthy. Didn't ask to be the most powerful or even the best looking. He asked for the gift of wisdom. And it is. It is just that. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit we receive in the sacrament of confirmation. God was pleased with Solomon's request. He granted Solomon's wish. Solomon became very wise. Unfortunately, he then became a politician. When he followed his father and became the king of Israel, he decided, what's the best way to defend this country? Israel is always under threat, just as we see every day in the news right now with the terrible conflict that's been raging for more than a month. But it's only the size of New Jersey, and it was surrounded by kingdoms and empires that were far larger and far more powerful. Solomon decided that little Israel would be best served if there was the royal blood of all those foreign kingdoms running through the royal family and the royal household of Israel because those kings would never invade the palace where their daughters and grandchildren were living. And so Solomon the wise set out an ambitious program to intermarry with all of Israel's neighboring countries, even its enemies, and he really took this to its illogical extreme. When we get to the first book of Kings, chapter 11, verse 3, we see that Solomon didn't have one or two or three or four wives at the same time. The scripture tells us he had 700 wives at the same time and 300 concubines on top of that. What a busy man. There was a problem, however. Solomon was bringing all these women who were not Jewish, who were not part of the covenant, who did not believe in the one God into his home and any husband out here knows you keep the wife happy, he started worshiping their gods, practicing their pagan customs all at the same time as he was building the temple of the one true God in Jerusalem to honor the God, the only God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, then these pagan wives had pagan children, and when Solomon got old and was preparing to die, he didn't leave any clear successor to take his place. And all these women wanted their sons on the throne. And thus, Solomon the wise, that proved not to be wisdom. It proved to be folly and failure. His sons fought a civil war that divided the country for a thousand years until Rome destroyed it forever and dispersed all the Jews from the land. In a sense then, how ironic that Solomon is telling us what are the traits of a very good wife because he never found what he was looking for. That's not for lack of effort, not for lack of trying. 
But he did say, if one finds a good wife, she is worth more than pearls. Jesus once said something similar, but it wasn't about a good wife. It was about our faith. We've been hearing for months from Matthew's gospel, right smack dab in the middle of Matthew. Jesus refers to our cherished faith in the one true God as the pearl of great price, the treasure buried in a field, the one who finds it goes and sells all that he has so he can buy that field just so he might have the treasure buried within it. That helps to explain how we are to feel about the faith that many no longer practice, many take for granted, others have watered down. It is truly the pearl of great price. And that's the story behind the story of the parable of the talents. Jesus describes a landowner who's about to go on a journey, and so he entrusts his wealth to those who will be staying behind to see what they do with it while he is gone. The one who's given five makes five. The one who's given two makes two. The one who has one doesn't do anything except bury it in the sand. So afraid and fearful is he of his boss. Jesus is the landowner. This is just before the Last Supper. His passion begins at the very start of the next chapter, Matthew chapter 26. Jesus, he sure was going on a journey. It's called the road to Calvary. It's the way of the cross. He was about to pass the torch, the baton of preaching the gospel, announcing the kingdom, and calling the people to repentance to his apostles because he was going home. They were going to stay behind to prepare other people to join him in the kingdom of God. He wanted to see what they were going to do with it, and he needed them to understand nothing ventured, nothing gained, no risk, no reward. And they took this rather seriously. But first, we have to understand what a talent is, at least in biblical terms. When we think of talent today, uh, we think of America's Got Talent. We think of someone who knows how to juggle or ride a unicycle. But talent was a measure of weight. It was a measure of weight. One talent was equivalent to 100 pounds of gold. We'd sure like to have that today. But that would have been even more precious. It would have been priceless in Jesus' time. And one talent was worth 6,000 days' wages for the average menial day laborer in Israel in the time of Jesus. It would take them 20 years of spending nothing and saving everything to even come close at amassing that type of wealth. So this landowner wasn't just leaving behind $20, $10, and $5 to see what they would do with it. He was leaving behind a vast treasure and those who were industrious were able to grow their wealth. Those who let fear and get in the way of their faith, they got nothing, they did nothing, and they were punished for it. Jesus, who was about to go out the cross, Jesus, who was telling them, you must take risks for the spread of the gospel, he was about to risk it all. As he climbed that cross, he was doing so because he has an intense and fiery love of God the Father and just as intense a love for each and every one of his sheep for whom he was then going to lay down his life, and that includes you and me. He was willing to risk it all so that we have the chance to gain it all, the opportunity to live again and forever, to see those who have gone before us, to see the face of God, and to leave this world behind that is so full of sadness and sickness, disappointment, disaster, and death. The apostles, most of them, took Jesus at his word, and they were industrious with the gifts that he had given to them. 
Judas, he was the one that buried it in the sand, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, then went out and hung himself. But 10 of the 12 would preach the gospel to the ends of the earth in obedience to Jesus' great command, and today they wear the martyr's crown. 25 of the first 31 popes of the Catholic Church, same thing, all martyred for the faith. They risked it all, and now they have gained a great reward beyond our imagining, that pearl of great price, the opportunity to be with God in his kingdom. And so, my friends, Jesus has entrusted a great gift to all of us. It is our faith. And we are told by our baptism that we are all called not only to practice it and profess it, but also to preach it. And word and deed in this world that increasingly does not know God and just doesn't care. And so one day, we will make an account of our stewardship. That's really what this story is all about. Jesus is referring to the judgment day. He'll finish this chapter. We'll hear it in next Sunday's gospel, where he'll be celebrating saints from sinners, wheat from chaff, sheep from goats, and making it very clear, whatever you do for one of my least ones, you did it for me. Whatever you didn't do for one of them, you didn't do it for me. He takes it very personally, whether we love God and love others, whether we serve God and serve others, whether we ask forgiveness from God and forgive others. What are we doing with our faith? What are we doing with all the talents, the gifts, and abilities that he has given to us? Is it for us? Is it from us? Or is it for him and for his glory? And in terms of our faith, have we ever tried to get someone to heaven? Have we ever tried to keep someone from hell? One day we will answer for it. What we want to hear is not depart from me, you evildoers, I do not know you but rather having lived our life faithfully and well for the glory of God and repented of our sins and done penance for them, we'd like to hear when we're knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now come share my master's joy.